Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Three, two, one. But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer, Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon, Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreit is on the phone. We are Sports Podcast. It is Monday, November 2021, people. Hope everybody had a great weekend. Hope everybody enjoyed college football. Hope everybody... Well, frankly, I hope you're not a Florida Gators fan. Tough weekend to be Dan Mullen. L- lot to get into. Loaded show today. Here is kind of the quick rundown of kind of what I have in mind for today's show. I will open with, rather than doing one big topic, I think what we should do instead is kind of just reset the playoff picture after this past Saturday. There really were no monumental upsets, even Michigan State losing to Purdue. Michigan State is still okay. They now just have no margin for error going forward. And so rather than doing 11 minutes on Michigan State-Purdue or 11 minutes on Cincinnati-Tulsa or whatever, what I just want to do is reset the college football playoff picture, give you five takeaways what Saturday meant for the college football playoff picture. From there, We will transition to the aforementioned Dan Mullen. It is crazy. I could not have believed even two weeks ago, even three weeks ago after Florida lost to Kentucky, that Dan Mullen could actually be in trouble. But now I kind of see a scenario where I'm starting to wonder just how long he has if he even wants to be there after this season, let alone if Florida and Florida fans are going to want him. We'll talk a little bit about that Kentucky-Tennessee game. I don't think people appreciate what Josh Heupel is doing this year. We'll talk a little bit about the Ohio Ohio State-Nebraska game, excuse me, because I think it was a fascinating result, and this Scott Frost story continues to evolve. I, I just think it's an interesting scenario where I talked about last week after the loss to Purdue. Is it time to move on? Now it's almost the opposite. After another close win, I explain why it might be time to actually consider keeping Scott Frost for another year. So loaded show, lots to get into, lots of college football, so much to talk about. But before we get into the craziness of this weekend, it's time to welcome back our favorite sponsor and your lady's favorite sponsor too. They were with us in the spring through Father's Day. They are back for the holiday season. I'm, of course, talking about Manscaped, the global leader in men's below-the-waist grooming. That's right. This holiday season, fellas, join the more than 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped. Yes, I cannot believe it. Cannot believe I'm saying this, but holiday season is fast approaching. It is already the middle of November, and this holiday season, I am thankful for the new 
Performance Package 4.0 courtesy of Manscaped. And I am also thankful for the fact that Manscaped always takes care of listeners of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. This year, it is no different. 20% off plus free shipping when you use the code Torres at Manscaped.com. Let me tell you a little bit about the Performance Package 4.0, fellas. You know that performance is everything, and there is nothing that is going to make you feel more confident about yourself when you show up at Thanksgiving, when you show up at your office Christmas party, than the Performance Package 4.0. Don't tell them why you're confident. Don't tell them how you're confident, but we'll all know the truth. It's because of Manscaped. Inside the Performance Package 4.0, you'll find the Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, Weed Whacker Ear and Nose Hair Trimmer, Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant, Crop Reviver Toner, Performance Boxer Briefs, and a travel bag to hold all your goodies. Let me tell you about a few of those products individually. Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin safe technology. It also has a 4000K LED spotlight which you can flip on and off when you're needed for a more precise shape. Oh, and the best part? Take it in the shower. It's waterproof. The Performance Package 4.0 also includes the Weed Whacker to trap your other weeds. Yeah, I'm talking about in your nose, in your ears. Fellas, that's gross. That's disgusting. You need the Weed Whacker 4.0. This ear and nose hair trimmer uses a 9,000 RPM motor power 360-degree rotary dual-blade system to provide proprietary skin-safe technology, which helps prevent nicks, cuts, snags, and lugs in those delicate areas. Also, can't forget to mention... The Manscapes Liquid Formulations, the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and Crop Reviver Toner Spray. When you're done shaving, you throw those on. Basically, think about it like this. After a good Thanksgiving dinner, what do you want? A little apple, apple pie, a little ice cream. This is basically apple pie and ice cream for down below for your lady. That's how good Manscaped is. And on top of that, here's the crazy part. Manscaped is also throwing in two free gifts from the Performance Package 4.0 the Manscaped Boxers, and the Shed Travel Bag. Here's the best part, and here's what's new this holiday season, which I'm so excited about. I've had a chance to sample both of these. Manscaped has been busy and just launched their refined body wash and two-in-one shampoo plus conditioner. Both feature the Manscaped signature scent and will help unlock your confidence this year. Basically, I got this package in the mail. I was like Dorothy in uh, The Wizard of Oz. Ball shaver, shampoo, body wash. Oh my. So this is what you got to do. Manscaped, it's the holiday season. By the way, I always say it, but ladies, you guys embarrassed? You go to manscaped.com too. This promo code works. You can knock out all your gifts in one spot. Get stuff for your husband. Get stuff for, uh, you know, whatever. Whoever other males are in your life. I'm not here to, I'm not here to judge. I'm not here to ask, but manscaped.com, that's the whole deal. Go there. Use the promo code Torres, 20% off plus free shipping on your order again when you use the promo code TORRES. Guys, do it for yourself. Ladies, do it for your your guys. Again, manscaped.com promo code TORRES gets you 20% off plus free shipping. As I always tell you, your balls will thank you, and I will thank you, and a big thank you to Manscaped. And with that said, let's get to the topic of the day. And really, to be blunt, as I said to lead the show, I don't know that there truly was a genuine, legitimate topic of the day. Uh, I think Florida's probably it, but we're talking now about a four and five football team. As I record here late Monday or late Sunday night into Monday, nothing has happened to Dan Mullen, so we'll have time to get to that. But what I figured I would do is this. Instead of kind of yell and scream about Dan Mullen to lead the show, I think it's just best to kind of reset the playoff picture after this past Saturday. 
We know what the committee had coming out of week 10. We know what the picture looked like. And so now because of it, we kind of know which games are important, which games matter, and ultimately, honestly, which games don't matter. And so rather than yell and scream about a game that ultimately doesn't matter, even something like Michigan State is the number three team, I'll, I'll explain in a minute, but that loss doesn't really mean all that much in terms of their bigger picture goals of winning the Big Ten, competing for a college football playoff berth. Uh, so I, I, I just think now's a good time to kind of reset what did we learn on Tuesday, what happened on Saturday, and how do we piece them together. And I've ultimately come up with five things that happened on Saturday that I believe kind of restructure what the college football playoff picture looks like coming out of Saturday. The first one, the ACC is officially eliminated from the college football playoff conversation. For people who don't know, Wake Forest was ranked number nine in the first college football playoff poll. They were the only ACC team ranked in the top 15, and they were the only ACC team that realistically had any shot at the college football playoff. Every other team in the ACC had at least two losses coming into the weekend. That is still the case, and now Wake Forest has taken their first loss of the year. They played at UNC, really fun game, final score 58-55. I hope you took my advice. I hope you took the over. But the bottom line remains that with this loss, the ACC is officially out of the college football playoff picture. I'll be honest, I don't know where Wake Forest would have been, what they would have had to do, how they would have had to win to even get in as an undefeated ACC champ. But now with one loss, I just don't see them getting into this playoff picture unless, of course, there is complete chaos. Unless everybody other than Georgia and the SEC has multiple losses, unless the Big Ten completely craps the bed, unless Oregon, Oklahoma completely crap the bed, I don't see a one-loss Wake Forest getting in. And as I said, you look at the rest of the picture in that conference, Conference. NC State has two losses. Pitt has two losses. Clemson has three losses. Wake Forest was the last feasible team, and I thought they were kind of on the periphery of teams that are realistic at this point. They are now out. What is kind of sad, but kind of still cool at the same time, I'll tell you this. If you have not watched Wake Forest, if you did not watch the game Saturday, they are a really fun team to watch. And I think they are the perfect example of in a four-team playoff system. I know if it was 12 teams, we would get to see them in a playoff. But in a four-team college football playoff system, they're kind of that perfect second-tier team. They don't really deserve to be in the playoff. They don't really deserve to be competing for a national championship. No disrespect to any Wake Forest fan that might hear this, but I think you guys all know you're not on the level of Ohio State, Alabama, let alone a school like Georgia. And instead now, they will probably win the ACC, go to a really big bowl game, and make for at least an interesting game, right? If we're still going to have this 12-team college football, or this 14-team college football playoff structure, we're still going to have these other bowl games, at least make them entertaining. And Wake Forest, the only team in college football that has scored at least 35 points in every game this season, they have scored at least 40 in their last four games. They will make for an interesting opponent if they go to the Peach Bowl or the Fiesta Bowl and they play uh, a Notre Dame or a second or third SEC team or whatever. But the first takeaway from Saturday, the ACC is officially eliminated from the college football playoff. I hope Wake does enough to go to a big bowl game where we get to see them against a fun opponent. Second big takeaway, this is a topic I have been on for weeks, so I am not going to belabor the point. Alabama just ain't right. And people will yell and scream. We have a lot of Alabama fans that listen to this show. Torres, you hate us, this, that, the I don't hate you. But at the end of the day, Alabama, it's championship or bust. It's the same with Kentucky basketball. It's the same with the Los Angeles Lakers. It's the same with whoever else you want to talk about in college football or in sports. There is no 
having a good season going 10 at 2 at Alabama. You want to compete at the highest level, and if you're not, you want to fix things so that you can get back there next year. And when you look at Alabama, this just isn't a vintage Bama team. I thought I saw, I, you know, I, I started to see some holes after that Texas A&M game where Texas A&M really exposed some things, but you figure, okay, you lose to an improving Texas A&M team who legitimately now we have to say is a very good football team. But I, when I first really got concerned about Alabama, it was that Tennessee game about two, three weeks ago. And we're going to talk about uh, Josh Heupel in a minute. I believe he is doing one of the better coaching jobs in all of college football. But at the end of the day, when you are Alabama and you are playing Tennessee and you are a 20-whatever point favorite against Tennessee a few weeks ago and it is a one-score game, middle of the fourth quarter, early fourth quarter, I know there is something that's not right. And that continued against LSU on Saturday. And I'll be honest, my college football picks this week, they haven't been great all year. I went 6-1 and one this week. The only game that I missed was Alabama-LSU. I had Alabama in the first half. And I thought, okay, if we are ever going to get a good performance from Alabama, it is going to be coming off of a bye against a rival and against a rival that the last time they came to Bryant-Denny Stadium, they beat Alabama in Alabama, the famous Ed Orgeron, Coach O, Roll Tide, what F you game. And so I said, okay, I don't believe in Bama to be really competing for a national championship, but at the same time, this is the game that they're going to be awesome. Instead, what happens? They beat, out, they beat LSU 20-14, to 14, and here is the scary thing. First of all, only 308 yards of total offense. First of all, this snapped a, a streak dating back to the season that Tua played Trevor Lawrence in the national championship game of Alabama scoring at least 30 points. Here's a crazy stat. Alabama rushed for six yards in the game. Total in the game, Alabama rushed for six yards against LSU. If I am an Alabama fan, that is mortifying because LSU isn't that good. LSU is banged up on defense, and as the schedule gets tougher, you are going to have to be able to move the ball. And so while I do think Alabama has some flaws, don't love their secondary. Don't love the skill position wide receivers outside of Jamison Williams. I don't believe that they have a guy that can separate and just make plays, but the biggest concern remains the offensive line. I told you a few weeks ago, Doug Marone, the former NFL head coach, is now Alabama's offensive line coach, and they just can't figure it out. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's wrong. I don't know if he thought, I'm going to come to college and I'm the brilliant NFL head coach and, I, I, and, and this is going to be a cakewalk and I'm not going to learn anything and I'm going to use Nick Saban for a year and go get another head coaching job. I don't know why, but it is not clicking. As I've told you many times, they had given up, Alabama had given up 18 sacks coming into Saturday's game. Now, after this game, they have given up 22 LSU sacking Bryce Young four times. And so, again, I understand what uh, an Alabama fan would say. We're number two. The only team we lost to was Texas A&M. Texas A&M is awesome, and we could have rallied to beat them. But what I am also telling you is I think Alabama fans know deep down inside. This team is flawed. This team has problems. And I think even Alabama fans are coming around to the idea, if we do not get this offensive line fixed in a hurry, we're not competing at the highest level. We, I don't think Alabama fans want to say it. I don't know if you're beating Auburn and Auburn. And even if you beat Auburn and Auburn, you are not beating Georgia. That was my thing I will give Alabama fans credit for. Coming out of this weekend, I had Alabama fans saying, look, Torres, I've given you a hard time. But you're right. If we cannot improve this O-line play in a hurry, we ain't beating Georgia. So that was takeaway number two. Takeaway number one, of course, was the, the ACC is out of the playoff picture. Takeaway number three. 
Everyone else pretty much held serve, okay? So let's just kind of rip through some teams. Everybody else is kind of in the same position that they were coming into the weekend. Let's start with Michigan State because you're probably sitting there saying, Tori, what do, you, what do you mean? Michigan State was number three in the country. They just lost to unranked Purdue. What is it? Like, like, what do you mean that everybody's in the same position? Everybody is in the same position. Let's start with Michigan State. We talked Alabama. I want to talk Georgia later. Those were number two and number one in the first poll. Michigan State was number three. Yes, Michigan State lost on Saturday to Purdue. First of all, it's crazy. I don't even know how many of you were surprised by it. Michigan State was just a three-point favorite on the road. As I told you on sat on this past Friday show, Purdue can throw the football. Michigan State has struggled to defend the pass. And I really thought this was a place that Purdue could get exposed, or Michigan State could get exposed, and that's exactly what happened. But in the grand scheme of things, nothing changes for Michigan State. Instead of being 9-0 and today, they're 8-1. and that's the good news. Michigan State is still 8-1, and one, and all of their goals are still ahead of them. They play Maryland this week, and then they play at Ohio State, and then they play Penn State at home to close the season. If Michigan State wins out in the regular season, they are going to the conference championship game. They are winning the Big Ten East, and they are playing for a Big Ten championship game. If they win the Big Ten championship at 12-1, at and one, that means they are almost certainly in the college football playoff. So while the Purdue loss felt like it meant something, the bottom line is, as Al Davis said, just win, baby. Michigan State, you are going to be fine. Let's rip through some of the other teams because, like I said, I think everybody else pretty much held serve. First of all, Oregon, Pac-12, they did what they had to do against Washington. Weird game, driving rain. I still don't know what to make of Oregon, but the bottom line is they keep winning. Ohio State keeps winning. Oregon, to its credit, I think is going to be in the playoff picture. The committee, I criticized them for a lot last week, but I like the fact that they put Oregon ahead of Ohio State and gave Oregon credit for going to the horseshoe and getting that win. I don't know if Oregon beats them on a neutral field if they play today. I certainly don't think they go to the horseshoe and beat Ohio State today like they did in the first weekend in September, second weekend in September, whatever it is. But the games do have to matter, and Oregon did what it had to do. They beat their, their rival Washington 26-16, Washington is falling apart, Jimmy Lake the head coach is under fire because he shoved one of his players, they fired their play caller on Sunday, but Oregon did what it had to do. And so if you're an Oregon fan, it's survive in advance, right? It's not about anything other than just keep winning because I do not believe that Ohio State, if Ohio State keeps winning, will jump Oregon State or, or, or jump Oregon as long as Oregon keeps winning. And even if somebody beats Ohio State, that eliminates someone from that playoff picture as well. Oregon, for people who do not know, here is what their remaining schedule is as they sit at 8-1. and one. They do play this coming week against a Wazoo team, Washington State, that weirdly has actually played pretty well uh, since Nick Rolovich left the program, obviously because of the mask or because of the vaccine mandate stuff. Took care of Arizona State last week. They were on a bye this week, so Washington State will be coming into that game off of a bye. Then. Uh, if Oregon survives that, they have what is probably the toughest game left on their schedule at Utah. Utah is currently leading the Pac-12 South at 6-3 and three overall, 5-1 and one in Pac-12 play. Oregon closes with a home game against their rival Oregon State. And then there would, of course, be the Pac-12 championship game where they would play, likely, Utah in the Pac-12 championship game if they get there for Oregon again. Just win, survive, and advance. Ohio State. Uh, we don't need to belabor the point, It's it, but it's kind of obvious, right? Ohio State needs to keep winning, keep winning, and the best thing they can do is keep winning and hope 
that Oregon loses because Ohio State's in the weird position where I find the scenario very hard to believe that there is any way that Ohio State could go 12-1, and win the Big Ten, and be left out of the college football playoff, but there's that huge caveat of they have the head-to-head loss with Oregon. So as long as Oregon keeps winning, as long as they keep pace, as long as they keep the same schedule as Ohio State, the same record as Ohio State, excuse me, I do think it is going to be kind of tough for Ohio State to pass them. So what Ohio State has to do, first of all, keep winning. By the end of the year, if you keep winning, that means you beat Michigan State, you beat Michigan, obviously you've already beaten Penn State, and on top of that, it's you'd also play somebody pretty good in the Big Ten Championship game, a game that's probably looking like Wisconsin, which is all of a sudden playing really well right now. But again, with Ohio State, it's bizarre because they don't have that head-to-head win over Oregon, and right now, as long as Oregon keeps winning, there is that caveat that it seems hard that they would surpass them. But again, just keep winning, and I do feel like Ohio State's going to be fine because we know this is college football and something weird's going to happen. Finally, I would say this. I should mention, by the way, Oklahoma did not play this week. They are in the pole position in the Big 12. They still have to play Baylor, Iowa State, and on top of Baylor, Iowa State, and Oklahoma State, Oklahoma State also sitting at 8-1 and one coming out of this past weekend, and so that could end up being a really big game in that conference, but Oklahoma, which was also in the top 10, is in the mix. The final team, I don't think anybody's talking about. You know, Michigan is right in this thing, and and first of all, Michigan fans just got to be kicking themselves, man. They had that Michigan State game in their hands, and it slipped through their fingers, but if Michigan State does what it, if Michigan does what it needs to do and wins, Michigan's going to the college football playoff, and the weird thing is, I think they're uniquely equipped this year to play with Ohio State like they haven't in the past. Now, first of all, they play at Penn State this weekend. They are opening as a small underdog. DraftKings Sportsbook, I saw, had it as a one-point spread. Penn State favored. And so you got to even get by Penn State this week before you can start worrying about Ohio State. But if you do beat Penn State, what I would say about Michigan that's really interesting, I do think Ohio State, Michigan is uniquely built to beat Ohio State. Ohio State is having trouble running the ball right now, which we're going to talk about more in a minute. But at the same time, Ohio State's struggling to run the ball. Michigan plays great run defense, and Michigan runs the ball right at you. And the kid Cade McNamara is playing really well, really hard, and I think has been better at quarterback than people give him credit for. Again, though, you can't worry about Ohio State. You have to get by Penn State this coming weekend. Then you got kind of a tricky game in between at Maryland. Maryland, a decent team that is able to move the ball and score, so that will be interesting. Michigan's got to focus on Penn State before they start worrying about Ohio State. Those are my first three takeaways. Lastly, before we get to Georgia, number four takeaway, I mean, we got to talk Cincinnati, right? Um, Cincinnati, for people who did not see, they had to hold on for dear life against Tulsa this past weekend. The final score was 28-20, to but it was just such a bizarre game. Just such a bizarre game. It was a game where Cincinnati did not play well. They they had college game day there. They seemed to play a little bit tight. And then the final like two minutes of that game was just so bizarre. 28-20 is the score. Tulsa's driving. Tulsa's trying to score. Cincinnati has a goal line stand to keep Tulsa out. Check this out. They get the ball back with about a minute to go. Obviously, it's inside uh, their own five-yard line and they fumble it, Tulsa recovers and has four more chances to score against Cincinnati. They obviously would have needed the extra uh, or the two-point conversion of force overtime, but Cincinnati had to hold on for dear life. 
And so obviously coming out of it, the big topic is this team isn't very good, at least relative to the college football playoff conversation. And what I think we need to talk about with Cincinnati is this. I think there can be two things that are true about Cincinnati coming out of Saturday. I think right now, and I have largely been a Cincinnati proponent, I think it's hard to argue that the eye test tells us they're one of the four best teams in college football. Now, I don't really know who's good this year outside of Georgia, but Cincinnati is not playing that part of what the eye test is supposed to look like. Fair or not, we know that when you come from one of these smaller conferences, the group of five is what they're called in college football, mid-major in college basketball, it is a different set of of circumstances that you're playing with. It's not fair, but it's life. By the way, it's not fair for Alabama to have to go play at Texas A&M, at Mississippi State, uh, at Arkansas, whatever. Uh, So it's not fair. There's different unfairnesses about each individual school, but Cincinnati can't just win. They've got to win convincingly. Barely survived against Navy, pulled away late against Tulane, and then against Tulsa this past week wins by eight. So when I think we're talking about Cincinnati, I think there are two things that we have to talk about. One, It is really hard right now to argue that they are one of the four best teams in college football. But I was kind of surprised coming out of Saturday. I had a couple people tell me, well, they they will not go to the playoff after a performance like that. And what I would say is, slow your roll. Pump the brakes. Because while it was not good, what we also have to remember, the committee isn't picking four teams today. They're picking four teams after the championship games the first week in December. And so when you sit there and say that Cincinnati has no chance, well, other teams are going to lose along the way. And if Cincinnati keeps winning, again, it is going to be harder and harder for the college football playoff committee to snub them. Now, I made the argument last week. I talked about it on Friday's show. I still believe it's going to be an uphill battle. Cincinnati definitely needs help. They need Oregon to lose in the Pac-12. They need the Big 12 teams to start eliminating themselves. They got help this week by Baylor losing to TCU, kind of a surprise game. They got help by Michigan State losing to Purdue, where now it is certain that we will not have two one-loss teams in the Big Big 10 because everybody already has one loss with Ohio State losing to Oregon, Michigan losing to Michigan State, and now Michigan State losing to Purdue. So things need to happen for Cincinnati. They are going to need help, and I do think it's worth noting, I don't think they're one of the four best teams in college football right now, and I've been one of their biggest advocates and defenders but let's take ourselves out of this moment where we just saw how bad they looked and remember they have three big games they have three games left in the regular season they play SMU which is now currently seven and two could be a 10-win football they want to be a 10-win football team a nine-win football team excuse me and they could play Houston in the conference championship game, Houston is 8-1, 6-0 in league place. Houston should be ranked come that next playoff poll. So with Cincinnati, I think it's the weird dichotomy. They don't look the part. They don't necessarily have the resume this moment, but they have that Notre Dame win. And more importantly, other teams are going to lose around them. They obviously need to keep winning for that to happen. So those are my four big takeaways. I'm going to get to number five in a minute. But just to recap, ACC out. Alabama not right. Um, everybody else kind of kind of stayed in the position they were in coming out of this past Saturday. And then, of course, I just talked Cincinnati. The final thing I want to talk about. It's getting harder and harder for me to see anyone beating Georgia. And Georgia kind of like, look, right, in middle of the year, Alabama loses to Texas A&M. We all agree Georgia's the best team in college football. And I think even before that, people were arguing about Georgia. But one thing that I've said on this show throughout, 
Georgia kind of is who they are. They have a, a, an experienced, veteran, former walk-on at quarterback. He is limited. His name is Stetson Bennett. Um, at some point, somebody is going to crack the code on this defense. And I kind of felt like, okay, I'm not saying Georgia is going to lose, but the competition will get tougher for Georgia as time goes on. And what I will tell you is, as the weeks go on, I don't want to. I, we have Georgia fans that listen to this show. I don't want you guys to sit here and, and say that I jinxed you if something bad happens. But what I am telling you is, as I watch these other teams, it is becoming increasingly harder for me to find the team that I feel like is going to match up really, really, really well with Georgia. First of all, it's because Georgia's freaking awesome. Okay, so they obviously won on Saturday. They improved to nine and zero. And the defense is historic. And I think the offense is better than people realize. We'll get to the offense in a second. But the defense is just incredible. 230 yards per game they are giving up right now. That is number two in college football. The only team that's better is Wisconsin. And they are giving up, check this out. This is amazing. 6.6 points per game through nine games. The second closest is Texas A&M that's given up 14.5 points per game. So the second best scoring defense in college football, Georgia is giving up half of that. You want to know what my maybe my favorite stat on Georgia is? This stat blew my mind when I saw it. Georgia, through nine games, has given up six total touchdowns on defense. The entire season, nine games, Georgia has allowed six touchdowns. That is insane. For some context, I think we all agree that Oklahoma's at least a little bit okay. Oklahoma gave up six touchdowns to Texas in just one game. Just one game. They gave up four touchdowns in the first quarter to Texas. Georgia has given up six all year, but then on top of that, it's like I just said a minute ago. The offense is coming around for Georgia. Stetson Bennett, I'll give him credit, man. I thought this was a kid that, you know, when, when, when things got tough, he was going to struggle and they were going to have to go back to JT Daniels at some point. It's becoming increasingly harder for me to justify saying that. He's completing 67% of his passes, 14 touchdowns, four interceptions. And look, to, to George's credit, they're not putting a lot on his plate, but he has been absolutely awesome. And on top of that, I don't think people realize this. We talk so much about the defense. George is in the top 15 nationally in scoring at almost 38 points per game or 34 points per game, excuse me. And here is the crazy part about that. If you've watched their games, they get up mostly so big so early, and then they just run the ball between the tackles and chew out and bleed the clock in the third and fourth quarters. They don't even try in the second half. That's the crazy part to me, and they're still putting up these insane point totals. Here is who they, who they, Here is what they have scored in their last several games against admittedly some pretty good competition. They played Missouri on Saturday. Missouri's terrible, so let's not include Missouri as good competition, but they scored 43 points. They played Florida last week, 34 points. They played Kentucky the week before, 30 points. They played Auburn the week before that, 34 points. Arkansas, ranked in the top 25 when they, top 10 when they played them. I think Arkansas will be ranked back in the top 25 this week, beat them 37-0. So the last four games, for an offense that isn't even trying to score, they're just trying to get up big, then hand the ball off, run out the clock, and go home. They have put up 37, 34, 30, 34, and 43, and I understand some of those were on defense. Obviously, there was that big second quarter against Florida, but it's absolutely incredible what they're doing on defense and now on offense as well. What I would also say beyond that, and I think this is interesting, every week, it is, every week Georgia keeps rolling 
while everybody else starts to show their warts. And you start looking at these teams that Georgia's going to have to compete with. Like, who, who is Georgia scared of right now? I get that Alabama historically has had their number. I get that if you ask the Vegas odds makers, it would be close to whatever, a, a, a sort of a pick'em game or Georgia would be a slight favorite. Here's the bottom line, though. I know all these college football and college basketball and NBA nerds get mad when we talk about the eye test, but sometimes the eye test in real world does matter. Sometimes you can't just base everything off analytics. Sometimes you can't base everything off numbers and of Vegas point spreads. Because if, if we do that, why even play the game? Why even send Alabama to play Texas A&M? Texas A&M pulled the upset. So to me, I, I don't buy this, well, they, Alabama is flawed. We just talked about them. They have real issues. They rushed for six yards on Saturday against a depleted, banged-up LSU defense. And you mean to tell me that they're just going to move the ball up and down the field against Georgia? I don't see it. And so because of it, unless something changes in a hurry, and with Nick Saban, you can never say never, I don't think they're beating Georgia. On top of that, Ohio State. I said on this podcast two weeks ago, I think Ohio State is the second-best team in college football. But I also think it's indisputable now that they also took advantage of a very soft spot in their schedule when they played three straight Big Ten games in the middle of their season against probably the three worst teams that they were going to play in the Big Ten all year. They played Rutgers, Maryland, and Indiana back-to-back-to-back and destroyed them. Then last week they played Penn State. Talked about it on this show. Basically, uh, it was a nine-point game, but it was a lot closer than that nine-point game. Penn State converted more third downs. Penn State threw for 360 yards passing. Penn State, if they could run the ball even a little bit, could have beaten Ohio State, but more important than that, what I saw Saturday against Nebraska confirmed something to me. Ohio State can't run the ball against good teams. Ohio State against Nebraska, 90 yards rushing on 30 carries, 3 yards per carry, and if you watch that Penn State game, they struggled to move the ball against Penn State in the first half before Penn State eventually wore down. And so when I look at this Ohio State team, I'm not saying they can't get by Michigan State. I'm not saying they can't get by Michigan. I'm not even saying they can't get by Wisconsin, a truly elite defense. But I just, if you can't run the ball against Georgia, it's over. Georgia's got great cover corners. You can't expect to throw the ball 50-something times like Ohio State did against Nebraska. I mean, if you watch that Nebraska game, we're getting to Scott Frost later in the show. If you watch that Nebraska game, C.J. Stroud threw the ball 54 times, and it was because they couldn't run the ball. So I don't see Ohio State doing it. Michigan, I mean, Michigan State, excuse me, let's start with them. It ain't happening with Michigan State. They're ahead of schedule. They're a great story. They're not beating Georgia. Michigan, I actually think matches up with a lot of teams, but they're basically Georgia with inferior players. They want to run the ball. They want to rely on their defense. Georgia's got better players at every position. Michigan ain't beating them. And so you start going down the list. Oklahoma, Oklahoma can't stop a, a, a warm breeze, and they're going to they're gonna go toe-for-toe toe with Georgia? I don't see it. And so, listen, that's my big final takeaway. I don't want to belabor the point. I don't, if something bad happens to Georgia fans, want them coming after me and saying, Torres, you ruined our season. I'm just telling you, it seems harder and harder and harder for me to to justify or see how Georgia is going to lose this year. Maybe it does happen, but it would be truly shocking to me. So those are my big five takeaways. ACC out of the playoff picture, Bama struggling, um, everybody else held serve, Cincinnati, and of course, Georgia. So what I want to do, went way longer than what I anticipated. Do want to take a quick break. I do want to come back, and I do want to talk a little Dan Mullen. Our boy is in all sorts of trouble. We'll talk Dan Mullen. That's coming up. All right, everybody. I am back, going to be back, going to be back, and I do want to switch gears, and I do want to talk about 
our old buddy, Dan Mullen. And we have talked a lot about Dan Mullen over the last couple weeks, but what I will say about my coverage of Dan Mullen and what's going on at Florida is I have never once said that I believe anything other than that Dan Mullen is going to be the head coach at Florida next year. Yes, the team's on a losing streak. Yes, the things have not gone well. Yes, he is chirping with the media. And yes, I did believe that coaching staff changes were going to have to be made, specifically on the defensive side of the football, where Todd Grantham, the defensive coordinator, is not getting the job done. But I believe that as long as Florida took care of business, beat the teams that they were supposed to down the stretch, that Dan Mullen was going to be fine as Florida's head coach and be the head coach at Florida going into 2022. Then Saturday night happened. Not sure how much you got to watch, but Florida went to South Carolina and lost to the Gamecocks 40-17 to in what was quick, unbelievably the most shocking result from the college football weekend, right? Like, Michigan State losing is weird, but not that surprising. Um, whoever, uh, Alabama struggling, not surprising. Florida losing by 23 points to th- South Carolina that lost by 30 to Texas A&M the last time they took the field. That was the most shocking result of the college football weekend. And it also leads me to this. I will just say, up until about, I don't know, two, three, four days ago, I did not believe that Dan Mullen would be anything other than the Florida head football coach next season. I think now it's more likely than not that he is not back at all. And I think it might be best for both sides. In terms of the game itself, we'll get into it in a minute. But I do want to give kind of the 30,000-foot view on Florida because I have actually, I feel like, defended Dan Mullen probably more than most. Um, I know he can be a little prickly. I know he can be a little weird. But when you look at the totality of what he did going into this season, um, it was pretty impressive, right? 10 wins his first year, beats Michigan in the Peach Bowl. 11 wins his second year, beats Virginia in the Orange Bowl. Last year, yes, it was a weird ending, but you win the SEC East, weird loss to LSU late, you compete with Alabama, probably play them tougher than anybody in college football, and so when I looked at Dan Mullen coming into this year, I'm like, this guy is good, he's talented, he is the right coach, the right guy, the right person for this job, but man, oh man, has it gone off the rails quick, but again, like I said a minute ago, I really felt like, look, as long as he finished the season strong, he was going to be fine. And I think that's an important point to remember, is that if you look at Florida and the preseason projections, and I talked about it on this show, coming into the year, I think most of us kind of saw Florida as like an 8-4 and football team. Yeah, they were really good last year, but they lost Kyle Trask, their quarterback, who was a Heisman Trophy candidate. They lost Kyle Pitts, who was a top five pick to the Atlanta Falcons. They lose Kadarius Toney, who was a first round pick uh, of the New York Giants. And so it kind of felt like 8-4 and was kind of felt about right for Florida this year, especially with Alabama on the schedule. And so even coming into these last few games, I said, you know what? Yes, they're four and four, but let's look at who they're playing. They're playing at South Carolina. They're playing Sanford. They're playing at Missouri. They're playing Florida State. They will be favored in all those games. They will win all these games. And we will completely forget that we ever had Dan Mullen on the hot seat and we were yelling and screaming and complaining about it. But Saturday changed everything. And Saturday changed everything for a few reasons. First of all, it wasn't just that you lost to South Carolina. It was that you got your butt kicked. And I get that there was some flu issues within the team. I don't think Dan Mullen was making excuses when he talked about it. But they had players with IVs in their arms at halftime. And guys were flying on separate planes to kind of separate them from the rest of the team. And so there was some stuff working against them. But you can't lose to South Carolina 42-17 in a game where you only have 13 first downs three for 10 on third down, and you're outgained by 100 yards. Again, 
against a South Carolina team that is now 5-4, and four, but you look at who they beat. East Carolina, Eastern Illinois, Troy, and Vanderbilt. Those were their only wins coming into the night, and now they have picked up their signature win, the big win of the Shane Beamer era. And this loss now, I believe, has completely changed everything. It completely changes everything because I believe that coming in, you could have kind of excused pretty much everything that happened, right? Yeah, you lose to Kentucky early, um, but Kentucky was playing really well at the time. You lose to LSU, but LSU's your rival. You don't ever want to lose to them, especially in a bad year, but it happens. You lose to Georgia, the best team in the country, and even when Dan Mullen last week was chirping at the media, that happens sometimes. You think fans, you think boosters, you think the AD cares how you're treating the media? No, just win. Nick Saban treats the media like crap. I've never heard an Alabama fan say, you know what I'd like? Nick Saban to be nicer to the media. Doesn't happen. Nobody cares. Just win, and as long as Dan Mullen took care of business, I thought he'd be fine, but this loss changes everything. And so now you start to look at the totality of things. I really do think he's gone. First of all, there's the results, and the results speak for themselves over the last year or so since Florida at one point got to 8-1 and one in the season last year. I told you a minute ago. They lost their last three games last year. This year, they are now 4-5 and five overall, which means some quick math. Dan Mullen at the University of Florida is 4-8 and eight over his last 12 games. Beyond that, he is 2-8 and eight in his last 10 games against Power 5 teams. So just think about that. Power 5 teams, Dan Mullen is 2-8 and eight in his last 10 games. That includes, by the way, losses to South Carolina, Kentucky, Two losses to LSU in the middle of firing Jimbo or in the middle of firing at Orgeron. And the only wins that Dan Mullen has since the end of last year are Florida Atlantic, South Florida, Vanderbilt, and Tennessee. Does that sound like a guy that is going to retain his job or deserves to retain his job or shouldn't be under a little bit of fire? Because that's not really the kind of resume that 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 you know, if you're going to your AD at the end of the year and saying, I deserve to keep this job, you gotta start winning some of these games, Dan Mullen. I think on top of that, what I would be more concerned about if I was the Florida AD and why fans are frustrated, it's what I talked about a minute. It's what I talked about on last Wednesday's episode after he had that weird press conference as it pertained to recruiting. If you remember, the whole conversation centered around Kirby Smart is recruiting at an insane level. Why are you not recruiting at that level? And Dan Mullen just said, we'll talk about recruiting after the season. And on the one hand, like, I think he's right. You can't talk about recruits until they sign, so what's the point of having the conversation? But two, his inability to sign elite players is going to be a problem. It, it is the problem now. It is going to be the problem going forward, and it doesn't really feel as though Dan Mullen really cares to address it. Um, first of all, I looked it up. I think in some ways it's not quite as bad as has been reported. Uh, Dan Mullen has had the fifth-ranked recruiting class in the SEC twice since he got there, the sixth-ranked recruiting class one year, and somewhere usually between like the ninth and twelfth-ranked recruiting class in college football. So this guy isn't just like not even trying on the recruiting trail, but at the same time, it's about psyche, it's about attitude, and it is also, and this matters, who you're competing against. You could probably get away with having the 12th best recruiting class in college football if you're in the Big 12, if you're in the Big 10 even, if you're in the Pac-12, if you're certainly in the ACC. But in the SEC, it ain't going to cut it. Georgia's competing for a recruiting championship every single year. They usually sign either the first or second best class in the country. Alabama, best class in the country pretty much every year since Nick Saban's taken over. The only years that they haven't is when Kirby Smart took over. 
Jimbo Fisher now has a top five class in the country, just signed the number one player or got a commitment from the number one player in the country this weekend, Walter Nolan, a defensive tackle from Tennessee. Three elite recruiters, three elite programs, and the three programs that right now are having the most success in the conference. I go back to what I said last week. Even Coach O at LSU, you can criticize him for a lot of things. That guy recruited his butt off at LSU, and Dan Mullen's just not getting the job done with fringe top five classes in the SEC, fringe top ten classes in college football. That might not sound that bad, but I'm just telling you, there is a difference between the first, second, third class in the country and the ninth, tenth, eleventh class in the country. Don't believe me? What's the difference between Ohio State and Michigan? Michigan has really good players, players that are good enough to beat Indiana and Northwestern and most some years Michigan State and some years uh, Maryland and whoever. It's not good enough to beat Ohio State. Ohio State has a number one, two, three recruiting class every year. Michigan has number nine, 10, 11, 12, 13. And that's the difference. And that's the difference between what Florida is competing with and what Georgia is competing with. Finally, what I would say is in terms of this Dan Mullen present and future conversation, I think it's also worth noting it's one thing if the school wants to fire you. It's another thing if, or not, I don't even want to say fire you, but if they're ready to move on. It's another thing if you appear to be ready to move on too. And this was something I didn't talk about on the show last week, but first of all, even dating back to last week, or last year, excuse me, Dan Mullen's name was linked to a lot of NFL jobs. And I think I talked about it on the show at that time, but it was interesting because Dan Mullen's name was linked to a lot of jobs. As best as I can tell, I don't think he interviewed for any of them. And so what that tells me is that was his agent leaking his name to try to create interest in NFL circles in Dan Mullen. And that cycle started again last week. If you didn't see it, Rick Neuheisel, the announcer at CBS, said, yeah, I'm friends with Dan Mullen. And uh, I know for a fact he would leave for the NFL if the opportunity presented itself. Do you think Rick Neuheisel just said that for no particular reason? Or do you think Rick Neuheisel said that because he knew that Dan Mullen wanted that information out there and he was doing his buddy a solid? And so you add in the fact that this program is clearly going in the wrong direction, 2-8 and eight against their last 10 Power 5 teams, 4-8 and eight in their last 12 games overall. The fact that the clear answer is you have to be more committed on the recruiting trail and Dan Mullen doesn't seem interested. And now the fact that it seems pretty clear that Dan Mullen wants out and is trying to find a way out this is getting really ugly really quick. The last little thought I would say, Dan Mullen actually has a buyout that is $12 million this year. It sounds like a lot, but I'll give credit Andy Staples from The Athletic. I heard him say this, or maybe he tweeted it. I can't remember. It's a $12 million buyout, but it's interesting because Dan Mullen, if he was fired today, would only be owed $6 million up front and then $1 million for each of the next six years. And I know that's, that's just a lot of money to you. It's a lot of money to me. But for a college football SEC firing, $7 million in one year is not that bad. And it would obviously be offset. Uh, and he, they obviously wouldn't have to pay if he got another job somewhere else. And so I don't want to belabor the point. I don't want to keep going. But what I would tell you is this. Yes, things can get right if they start by beating Sanford this weekend, take care of Missouri, take care of Florida State. That still only gets them to 7-5 and five in the year. But this is an ever-evolving story, and this is an ever-evolving story, and it could make the coaching carousel that much more fascinating because coming into the year, we saw the scenario where LSU could open. We saw the scenario where USC could open. But now Florida, another top 10-ish type job, could potentially open up completely out of nowhere a year after they win the SEC East? I don't know if it's going to happen, but I will tell you, 
It has never felt more likely than it did after this past Saturday when Dan Mullen in Florida lose to South Carolina. Again, it's one thing to lose to Kentucky when Kentucky's 5-0. and It's one thing to lose to LSU. But you lose to South Carolina under a first-year head coach. This is fascinating. It appears as though Dan Mullen doesn't want to be there. And now I got to wonder, how much longer do these two sides try to figure it out or is Dan Mullen just going to be out of a job? Or is Florida going to be looking for a new head coach, however it works out, by the end of this year? So what I want to do, take one more quick break, come right back, and we will wrap the show. I do want to hit on two more things before we get out of here. All right, everybody, I am back. Good to be back, good to be back. Uh, and I do want to switch gears, but before I do, how about this? little late-breaking news. Uh, right after the segment on Dan Mullen that I just recorded, I go on social media, and I see that Todd Grantham, the defensive coordinator, has been fired. So I guess I, can, I, I guess I have a crystal ball. I guess I can see into the future because I just said that I believe that Dan Mullen would be back next year, but that staff changes would be made, would be needed, and uh, he has already done them. And so what I would say very quickly, if you are a Florida fan, what does this mean in the grand scheme of things outside of the fact that maybe Florida's defense could actually get a stop or two going forward? I think this is a good sign if you are a Florida fan, okay? And the reason I think you are, this is a good sign is because I think that Dan Mullen is starting to feel the heat a little bit, and this is a, an acknowledgement by him that I am not the smartest guy in the room, that I do not have all the answers, that changes need to be made, and that what I am doing is clearly not good enough. And so we will continue to cover this story as time goes on, but I actually think this is weirdly a positive thing for Florida fans because it's Dan Mullen looking in the mirror and basically saying, what I'm doing isn't good enough, this thing needs changes, and I do think it also might be a little bit of a reality check for Dan Mullen is – I, I know for a fact, or I don't know for a fact, but you can pr pretty much speculate, as I said a minute ago, that he wants to at least consider an NFL option if it's out there. And I think he might be realizing his options might be, uh, I get canned by Florida and I'm not coaching next year, or I figure this thing out on the fly. And so I think this is a positive. I think this is a good sign for Florida, and we will continue to cover this story as it continues. All right, with that said, let's switch gears. Let's hit on a couple other topics, and let's talk about a game that, um, that I already kind of talked about at the top of the show, and that is the Ohio State-Nebraska game. From the Ohio State perspective, I've already hit on it. Uh, nothing really changed from Ohio State. They get the victory. They take care of business. They beat a team they're supposed to. And now their playoff hopes basically hinge on two things. One, got to keep winning. Keep winning. Win the Big Ten Championship. Finish 12-1. and one. You're almost certainly in the playoff. And you also hope along the way to eliminate any shadow of a doubt that Oregon loses as well at some point. And if that happens, Ohio State is in the college football playoff. Not very much from the Ohio State perspective has changed. What I do want to do, though, is talk the other side of things, and I do want to talk a little Nebraska, because as I often say, the more interesting storyline is often in the losing locker room, and that is absolutely the case in this game. On top of that, I have talked a lot of Nebraska the last few weeks, and what I want to do for half a second before I get into this game and Nebraska and all that stuff, I want to take you behind the curtain of how this show operates. I put out the show, do what I do over the course of the day, but understand 
that I listen to you guys, okay? I listen to you guys. I listen to your feedback for the most part. I mean, listen, when you tell me to F off and you tell me I'm an idiot, I don't really listen to that part. But there are times where you guys as listeners have useful information for me, and I have to take take credence in that information. Not saying I agree 100% of the time, not saying I believe it 100% of the time, but there have been times where people tell me that listen to the podcast, Taurus, you completely whiffed on that one. You missed on this one. And last, and I bring this all up because last week when it came to Scott Frost, when Nebraska lost to Purdue, I said that that felt like the unofficial end of the Scott Frost era at Nebraska. And I had a few Nebraska fans reach out. I had a few Nebraska fans reach out privately. And they basically told me, look, we're not saying he's 100% back yet, Torres, but don't put the, the, the final nail in the coffin yet. There is a possibility that he could survive this year and get another year at Nebraska. And I started thinking about it, and I started talking to some people that I trust, and I bring this all up to say this. After Saturday, after the game against Ohio State, another game that came right down to the wire, another game that Nebraska could have won against an elite team, I am going to do something that I have never done before. I don't know if Scott Frost will be retained. I do think some of it may depend on the final two games against Wisconsin and Iowa. But what I am going to do is do something that I have never done before. I am going to advocate that a major college football program keep a head coach who is currently 3-7 and seven in year four and could potentially finish 3-9 and nine in year four. I've never done it. Don't know if I will ever do it again. But let me explain why I believe that, that Nebraska should at least consider keeping Scott Frost for another season. And I think it's important to note that this is, uh, I've never done it before, but I, I think part of this, it's important to note, is context, right? And, and just because something has never happened before, it doesn't mean that it can never happen going forward. I'll use a very simple example, the college football playoff race, right? We have never had a two-loss team make the college football playoff. We have never had an undefeated group of five team make the college football playoff. But just because it has never happened before doesn't mean that it can never happen going forward. And I think you could see that this year. Undefeated Cincinnati can get in. We talked about it earlier. Uh, their resume now does not look all that impressive, but if teams keep losing, at some point Cincinnati might move into that top four. On the flip side, Alabama goes undefeated, loses to Georgia by a field goal in the SEC championship game. It's hard to argue that they're anything other than one of the four best teams. And so just because something has never happened before doesn't mean that it can't happen going forward. And I think that's what I'm talking about with this Scott Frost case. When I look at this case, I have never advocated for a coach at three and seven to keep his job. But I think you have to consider it with Scott Frost for a few reasons. First of all, this team plays damn hard for him, man. I mean, look, we all watched the Nebraska game on Saturday. We all saw what happened against Ohio State, another close loss, this one by nine points. But if you watch the game, it wasn't really a nine-point game the entire game. As a matter of fact, Nebraska had the ball, drove the length of the field, under six minutes to go. They're in the red zone. Under seven minutes to go is about 620 and change, something like that, whatever. Uh, they're in the red zone. Third down, Adrian Martinez misses a wide open receiver crossing over the middle. That probably would have at least, it would have at least gotten a first down, maybe resulted in a touchdown. And if they convert that play, Nebraska takes a lead with six minutes left against Ohio State. Instead, third down isn't converted. Nebraska lines up for a field goal. Nebraska misses a field goal. Ohio State goes the length of the field, kicks a field goal, makes it a nine-point game, and the game is over. What you cannot argue, however, is that Nebraska was in another close game against another really good team. 
And so when I look at this team, what I see is I, I don't see a team that's a complete disaster. I don't see a team that's getting the doors blown off them in year four under a head coach. What I see is a team and a program that is incrementally in a much better place than they have been at any point in the last few years. You can argue me, you can debate me, but let's just look at the facts here. Two years ago, Ohio State came to Nebraska and beat them 48-7. to Now, Ohio State had a, you know, an insane quarterback in Justin Fields. I get it. But at the same time, to go from 48-7 to in year two to 20-whatever-it-was, uh, to, to 26-17 in year three, this thing is getting better. And on top of the Ohio State game, it wasn't just the Ohio State game. I talked about it last week. I've talked about it all year. Every single game comes down to the wire for Nebraska in what is unquestionably the toughest schedule in college football. Nebraska has already played four teams that currently rank in the top 10 of the college football playoff standings. They played a fifth team, which was in the top 25, and they still have two more teams that are ranked in the top 25, Wisconsin and Nebraska. So at the very least, they're going to have six opponents that were in the top 25 by the final poll. I, I suspect Nebraska or Wisconsin and uh, Iowa will be in there. And seven teams that were ranked at one point in these polls. And Nebraska played all of them tough. It wasn't just the Ohio State game. Go back to the Oklahoma game. Lose by six points in a game, seven points in a game where you leave some points on the field in special teams. You lose to Michigan State. 23-20 in overtime. You lose to Michigan by three at home when you're driving the field with the chance to take the lead. That is four teams in the top 10 that you could have beaten. You didn't close. I'm not excusing Scott Frost. I'm not excusing Nebraska. But this isn't Coach O at LSU where the bottom is falling out and where this program is trending in the wrong direction. This isn't even Dan Mullen at Florida, which I don't know if he'll keep his job or not. But, you know, it, it's definitely going in the right direction as opposed to a Florida, which again is two and eight in its last 10 against power five teams after winning 10 games in 2018, 11 games in 2019 and making the SEC championship game last year. And so I'm not saying that you can't get somebody else that will be just as good, if not better. I'm not saying three and nine or three and seven through 10 games is acceptable in year four. But at the same time, this isn't something that needs to be completely torn down and completely built back up again. This is something that is in the process of being built and needs to continue to be built. And I don't see the harm in giving this guy another year to see if you can continue that upward trajectory. Not every job is the same. Not every job is a two years and we should be in playoff contention type of job like whatever's going to happen at LSU or whatever's going to happen at Florida or even USC, which recruits at an insane level. And I'm not excusing Scott Frost. and I'm not saying that some of these problems don't fall on him. The special teams especially are a disaster, but I do think it's something to consider. This program is going in the right direction. It is not going in the wrong direction. The other thing I would say really quick, and I think it's worth noting, you have to know if you're Nebraska, where you are in the hierarchy of all of these coaching jobs. And this is not, by the way, to pick on Nebraska Day. I think most fans, I think the administrators understand this ain't 1992 anymore. You are not going to have the pick of the litter when it comes to the elite coaches that are available, if such a coach even exists. I don't know if there even is an elite coach on the market. And I think Nebraska fans and their administration are realistic. You know, I hear all the time, somebody needs to tell Nebraska it's not 1992 anymore. Uh, Nebraska knows. Nebraska understands 
understands their place in college football. But at the same time, you can't argue that Nebraska is a place that you can't win with the success that Iowa and Wisconsin have had. But anyway, I'm getting off subject here because I do think that who else is looking for a coach in this case matters. Um, You know, this is not the year to be going into a coaching search if you're Nebraska. Why? LSU has had an opening for five weeks now, four weeks now, whatever. They've gotten a five, six, seven-week head start on you. Every coach in America is picking LSU over Nebraska if you have the chance. USC has like a two-and-a-half-month head start on everybody. They will get the coach of their choosing unless that coach chooses LSU. But the bottom line is USC is a better job than Nebraska. Florida all of a sudden looks like it may open completely out of nowhere. It's worth noting. If James Franklin takes one of these jobs, Penn State will open up. And I'll take it even a step further. TCU is kind of an interesting job and kind of an interesting job worth considering in Dallas in the new Big 12 with no Texas, no Oklahoma. That job is going to attract great candidates. And so I'm not saying Nebraska is not a good job, but what I am saying is I don't know if this is the time to be going into a coaching search if you're Nebraska. Now, this all comes with the ultimatum of we've got to see what happens the last two weeks. You get the doors blown off of you against Wisconsin. You get the doors blown off of you against Iowa. It's a completely different story, and it completely changes the narrative. At the same time, I don't see what the harm is. I've heard people say, well, recruiting is struggling this year. Well, recruiting is down because Nebraska was going to bring in a small class anyway. I don't know how much recruiting really matters right now because, yes, you need to still build a foundation with high school players, but at the same time, the transfer portal is where you get all your players anyway. Look at what Mel Tucker's done at Michigan State. So it's not as though if Nebraska doesn't need players come the end of the season, they won't have an opportunity to get them. As a matter of fact, I take it a step further. Their best running back this year is, uh, well, one of the best running backs is Marquis Stepp, transfer from, uh, transfer from USC. Their best wide receiver is Samori Torre, transfer from Montana. So I just bring it up to say, Um, You know, I'm not fighting for Scott Frost if they let him go. I'm not saying it's the worst decision, but I think it's at least worth considering keeping him. I want to say one more thing on this, and then we'll get to some other stuff and get out of here. Um, I don't know what – here's the the, the other thing that's fascinating about Nebraska. I don't know what the move even is if you're Nebraska, and I was thinking about this. Think about the last – Four coaching hires since Nebraska got rid of Frank Solich. Frank Solich was the longtime assistant of Tom Osborne, kind of the last link to the glory era of Nebraska football. Since then, they made four coaching hires. Bill Callahan was the first coaching hire, former NFL head coach. It felt so good. We're going to modernize our offense. It doesn't work. Then they go to Bo Pelini, young defensive coordinator. He had been at the school before. That doesn't really work because he's kind of a jerk. He wins enough games, but he's kind of a jerk, and he gets run out of town. Um, then you go opposite of Bo Pelini, you go nice guy Mike Riley, established head coach at the college level. That one doesn't work either. And then you bring home Scott Frost, the native son. And so I just think about it when I think about this Nebraska job. They've tried the former NFL head coach and it failed. They tried the young coordinator and it failed. They tried the, uh, the, the established college head coach and Mike Riley and it failed. And they have tried the native son who was also the hot group of five coach, Scott Frost from Central Florida. And it has not worked. So I don't know what the answer is at Nebraska. And like I just said a minute ago, if it is if it so happens that Scott Frost is not retained, I'm not going to get on this show and yell and scream and say it's the worst decision that's ever been made in the history of college football. But I do think that for the first time ever, I am making the case that a school should keep a three and seven coach. Speaking of coaches, speaking of coaches, let's wrap with one other kind of quick story that I do think it just needs a quick moment of acknowledgement 
And that is what has happened at Tennessee under Josh Heupel this year. Tennessee goes to Kentucky. Tennessee beats Kentucky at Kroger Field. And Tennessee improves to 5-4 and four on the season. And while I don't think it's the biggest story we could possibly talk about, I don't think it's the sexiest story for many people that we could talk about, I do think we need to acknowledge Josh Heupel. I do think we need to acknowledge what he has done in about nine short months, not even that, at the University of Tennessee. And I do think i got to say, he is doing right now about as good of a job coaching in terms of quote-unquote actual coaching as anyone in college football. And I think it's important to bring up topics like this because I've talked about it before. In the the coverage of college football, we focus so much on those 30,000-foot view topics, right? We focus on the playoff, and what does this win mean for Alabama, and what does that loss mean for Ohio State, and what about Oregon, and what about Georgia, and what about all of these super elite teams that we knew were super elite coming in, and that becomes takes out the oxygen from the rest of the conversation in college football. We talk coaching carousel. Coach O gets fired. It's a nonstop cycle of who could be a candidate, who isn't a candidate, what does this loss mean, whatever. And we lose the stories that make college football just such a great sport, right? We probably should spend more time talking about Jeff Brom and Purdue. Purdue has no business beating two top five teams in college football in any given year, but they have done that. And I know you could argue Michigan State, Iowa, they're a little bit overrated. It doesn't change the fact that Purdue is having an incredible season, that Jeff Brom deserves acknowledgement, and that, yes, Purdue is probably never going to win a national title. They are probably never going to make a college football playoff. But at Purdue, the fact that you're 6-3, and 4-2 and two, this time of year with two wins over top 10 teams, top 5 teams, that matters and we should acknowledge it. It's the same at Kentucky with Mark Stoops. I know Kentucky fans are disappointed after this past weekend, but it shows you how far this program has come that you can be 6-3 and three overall in second place in the SEC East and disappointed at this time of the year. It's a great story what Mark Stoops is doing, even if they're, they're on a little bit of a losing streak right now, and it is an incredible story what Josh Heupel is doing at Tennessee. For people who don't know, this guy, this team has no business being as good as they are this year, no business being 5-4 and four in the first year of this head coaching regime, and what he is doing is absolutely incredible. First of all, really quickly, we do have to talk about the game on Saturday. Kentucky fans, cover your ears, fast forward through this one, because this is just an insane game from the Tennessee Vols, okay? Tennessee, I, have, I don't think I've ever seen this before. Tennessee wins 45-42, that part I have seen. Tennessee was outgained in time of possession. I don't know if outgained is the right word. Tennessee had the ball for 13 minutes and 52 seconds and put up 45 points. 50, uh, 45-42 final score, 13 minutes, 52 seconds. Kentucky had the ball 46 minutes and 8 seconds, and they were somehow outscored by Tennessee. Tennessee wins 45-42. Now, part of it, Tennessee did have a pick six, uh, but look at some of the driving, the drive score, the, the box score and the, the, the drive charts of this game. I mean, it is just insane. Tennessee, one play, 75 yards, touchdown. Three plays, 75 yards, touchdown. Seven plays, 52 yards, touchdown. Four plays, 35 yards, touchdown. Second half, three plays, 49 yards, touchdown. Three plays, 47 yards, touchdown. It was insane how quickly they moved the ball up the field. But what this says, what it shows me, everyone's going to focus on the 13 minutes. What it shows me is how far this program has come in a short amount of time. First of all, look at the win-loss record. As I said, Five and four this year. We're not going to talk about them in the same way as Georgia. We're not going to talk about them in the same way as Alabama. But this team has gotten better every single week. They continue to impress. And each and every week, this program becomes a little bit more impressive. Just, just look at the, the win-loss record. First of all, five and four, yes. First loss, 
was to Pitt. Pitt is currently 7-2, second place in the ACC, uh, first place in their division in the ACC, and it was a, a one-score game, and that was the game where they uh, Tennessee started Joe Milton. He was throwing the ball all over the field. You put in Hendon Hooker, and Hendon Hooker has never given the job back. That was a game, if you play Pitt right now, you probably beat Pitt. Uh, on top of that, you lose to Florida. That was the one kind of quote-unquote bad loss all year. But again, I'd say it again. You play Florida this weekend, I like Tennessee against them. And then from there, think about the last five games for Tennessee. Crush Mizzou, 62-24 final score. Crush South Carolina, 45-20 final score. You play Ole Miss, you lose 31-26, to but you have the ball driving the length of the field when your starting quarterback goes down. And if Hendon Hooker does not get hurt, Tennessee probably beats, wins that game and beats an Ole Miss team that's probably going to win 9-10 to 10 games in the regular season. Following week, you play Alabama. And the final score looks bad, 52-24. But you know what? If you watch the game, you know that Tennessee, Tennessee was within one possession early in the fourth quarter before they simply ran out of gas. And then Saturday, you beat Kentucky, and you're currently sitting at 5-4 and four and tied for second in the loss column in the SEC East. And again, it's not just about the win-loss total, and it's not just about – it's about context. Context matters in college football maybe more than anything else, and Josh Heupel has no business having this team at 5-4 and four right now in the SEC competing with, competing with Alabama at Bryant-Denny Stadium, beating Kentucky in uh, Kroger Field. And why is that? Do you guys know how much Tennessee lost in the transfer portal after Jeremy Pruitt was fired this offseason? Here's the thing. So uh, Tennessee is probably the first test case of what is going to happen in a college football program when you fire a head coach in the transfer portal era. Now, obviously, with Tennessee, there were some NCAA sanctions involved. It was an, an elongated coaching search because you had to find an AD before you could find a head coach. But this is what Tennessee lost after Jeremy Pruitt was fired this past season. They lost their two best running backs, Eric Gray, Ty Chandler. Eric Gray is now at Oklahoma. Ty Chandler is now at North Carolina. They lost their two starting offensive tackles. One of them is at Texas A&M. One of them is at Oklahoma. They lost their two best linebackers, Henry Toto, who is now at Alabama. And you know how we always talk about how, Mel Tuck, how good Mel Tucker is in the, in the transfer portal? Well, one of them was Quivarius Couch from Tennessee, who is now at Michigan State. They also lost their best safety, Key Lawrence. So you are talking about their two best running backs, their two starting offensive tackles, their two best linebackers, and their starting safety all left the program this past offseason, and they're still winning games. And so again, I don't want to belabor the point. I don't want to overdo it. But what I just want to say is so much of the conversation in college football continues to be about Alabama, Georgia, Cincinnati, whatever. I just want to take a moment to acknowledge what Josh Heupel has done in year one at Tennessee. I will say this. If you are a Nebraska, if you are this school, if you are that school, and you don't get your first choice as head coach, sometimes we're learning very quickly the non-sexiest hires sometimes work out to be the best. And right now, Josh Heupel, when you talk about where this program started, where they were when he took over this summer, and where they are now, he's doing as good of a job as any coach in college football. And oh, by the way, He's doing really about as good as any coach uh, that was hired last offseason. Really quickly, one last topic I want to get to, and then we'll get out of here. Uh, college basketball. Uh, I, I, we're going to do the full college basketball show on Tuesday. But really quickly, I just wanted to acknowledge that Kentucky picked up another five-star commitment on, on Sunday night. 
Cason Wallace, five-star guard, has committed to the University of Kentucky. I will talk about it a little bit more on the Tuesday show, but just really quickly wanted to acknowledge and commend John Calipari and his coaching staff, five-star prospect, top 10 in America, chooses Kentucky over Tennessee, uh, Texas, and Texas-San Antonio. And I know in the past I've done a lot of uh, reaction to some of these commitments. Nick Smith at Arkansas, Derek Lively at Duke, uh, Brandon Miller at Alabama, Shaden Sharp at Kentucky. This show's going long, so I'll talk about it more on Tuesday's show. But let me just say a couple things. One, this kid is really, really, really good. I mean, this kid is really good, really talented, two-way guard. And I think assuming that Shaden Sharp, the point guard that is committed to Kentucky, actually plays in the 2022-2023 season, and we talked about it a little bit a few episodes ago. Uh, He may try to show up to campus early. He may try to uh, come to campus this year to get ahead of schedule, and I believe if he comes to campus, he will be eligible. My understanding is, as of right now, they're saying he's not eligible. I think he could be eligible for the 2022 NBA draft, but assuming that he's not, I think Cason Wallace is the perfect guard to play off of him. He can play on the ball when he has to, but is better off the ball. He defends like hell. And so for Kentucky, this is now the third top 10 commit in the class of 2022 for the University of Kentucky. And so I've talked about the previous two. I've talked about Shaden Sharp. I've talked about uh, Chris Livingston. And I don't want to belabor the point, but I just give John Calipari credit, man, because I've talked about it a lot. But this past offseason, John Calipari had to, for the first time in his career, certainly in Kentucky, probably since he got fired from the New Jersey Nets, he had to look himself in the mirror and say, what we are doing is not good enough. He went out, he reshuffled his roster through the transfer portal, brought in a veteran group, Severe Wheeler, C.J. Frederick, who's still injured, uh, Oscar Shibway was already there, and of course, Kellen Grady. They go get the five-star in Ty Ty Washington. And now uh, he also reshook up his coaching staff and brought in Orlando Antigua and Chin Coleman, two of the most well-respected assistant coaches in college basketball. Now, I know this particular kid, Cason Wallace, is a Texas kid. He was mostly recruited by Jay Lucas, who was on the previous staff. But it goes without saying, it feels like there's a different energy at Kentucky right now. It feels like there's a different excitement about the program. This is now the third top 10 prospect that Kentucky has gotten a commitment from in this cycle. And it's worth noting, everybody says, oh, Kentucky gets good players all the time. It's the first time since 2013 that they will sign three top 10 prospects in one class. So shout out to Calipari, shout out to Chin Coleman, shout out to Orlando Antigua, shout out to Jay Lucas. I should also mention, by the way, two things. One, we will have the college basketball preview podcast on Tuesday where we will talk college basketball only, extra show on top of what I always do. On that show, I will make my final four national championship picks, also an interview with Hunter Dickinson. But... On top of that, what I would also say, if you follow me on Twitter, at Aaron underscore Torres, we have started merchandise, merch, uh, at the Aaron Torres uh, Media, Aaron Torres Online. And what I will tell you, our first piece of merch, we got some good stuff coming. Our first piece of merch is a Kentucky Basketball Revenge t-shirt. It is currently at the printers. We are currently waiting. I should hope to have uh, a lot of them in hand by the end of this week. And so if you want the Kentucky Basketball Revenge Tour t-shirt, DM me, hit me up, whatever, uh, because they're going to fly fast when they go out. I put put out the design on Twitter. You can find it on my Twitter feed, all that good stuff. All right, before we get out of here, well, no, not before we get out of here. We are going to get out of here. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. If you're not subscribed already, please make sure to do so. iTunes, 
the Podcast Addict app, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure that you are subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Follow on social media at Aaron underscore Torres, on Twitter at Aaron Torres Pod, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. That is all for today's show. I will be back Tuesday with the college basketball special. So, with that said, shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel Hates My Voice. I will be back Tuesday on the Aaron Torres Podcast. Judy was boring. Hello. Then, Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now, Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply